Bonjour, FMH podcast listeners. This is Sarah Burlingame, FMH blogger and friend of the podcast, asking for your support. We know Lindsay has done our community a profound service, bringing the voices of women in polygamy, intersectional feminism, and of course, the best and most hilarious commentary on schlocky, low-brow Mormon culture on the blogger knuckle. Please show your support by clicking on the donation link, or better yet, subscribe as a monthly member. If we believe that the work that women do to lift all of our voices is valuable, we need to support that work financially. If knowing that you had an FMH podcast waiting for you was the only thing that got you through the last Thanksgiving dinner without going full on Sonia Johnson, please give and give generously. another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time listening, or if you found us on iTunes, check out our site at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. We have 63 episodes right now, so you can go on and search and look at all the episodes, start at episode one and go in order. We're excited to to talk to you again today about the wives of Wilford Woodruff, and I have brought researcher and historian Corey Howard back on to talk about another one of Wilford Woodruff's wives. Corey, can you say hello? Hey. And Corey, can you tell us about yourself? I don't know that we've talked much about you personally, but can you tell us first how you became interested in this topic? Um, well, I'm from Utah growing up, and my family's always done genealogy, so they have a long pioneer history like many people in Utah and there were I'm trying to think if there there was a there was a surprise polygamy story in my family history so that kind of piqued my interest in polygamy what does that um, mean what's a surprise polygamy story i have a three times great grandfather who um took a plural wife at some point and then it didn't work out and nobody ever talked about it and someone else, not me and my family, found a record of their ceiling. And in in the efforts to prove or disprove that this was actually um, our ancestor, we've looked into a lot of things and found out, yes, it was, and they had been married, and there's a whole story there. So that, other than that, it's like general church history has been an interest. But, yeah, personally, there's there's that story. Well, I really appreciate your research. Corey is great, and like we mentioned on other episodes, she can help you if you're interested in researching your family history. So, uh, Corey, tell us about the wife of Wilford Woodruff we're going to talk about today, because in our last episode, we talked about Woodruff's first wife, Phoebe. And again, it makes me uncomfortable to sort of define them only as their, you know, prophet's wives. But these women were around Wilford Woodruff, of course, witnessed almost all of church history. He was from Kirtland to the Manifesto. This guy saw it all. So uh, his the women he was connected to have very interesting stories as well. So tell us about the woman we'll be talking about tonight. Um, we've got his second wife, Mary Ann Jackson. Um, she's, he met her in England when he and Phoebe were serving a mission. Okay, so... Um, in the first, you know, when we were first talking about Phoebe, it seemed by all accounts their marriages, their marriage was great and solid and they loved each other and it was this sort of romantic thing. But Marianne's story is going to be a little bit different for us, right? Um, yes, she would end up, she and, she and Wilfred would end up being divorced and later, much later, be resealed. It's interesting because uh, Corey has sent me her outline, and it's titled Mary Ann Jackson, Never a First Wife. So I'm excited to talk about that. So why don't you bring us in and tell us about her early days? Okay. Uh, Mary Ann was born in Liverpool in 1818. She was the second of four kids to William Jackson and Elizabeth Lloyd. Uh, when she was 19, her mother died, 
And by the time she was 22, her father also died. And three years after after her father died, Marianne joined the LDS Church, and she was she would be the only member of her family to join. Um, she she seems to have also had a very religious um, foundation as far as her conversion story. She had a she would tell a story of an incident when she was just recently converted, and they were at a meeting, and she bore her testimony of the Book of Mormon. And people from the group came up to her afterward and said that they had seen a, a a personage standing above her with his hands on her head. And so then, so as she was in England, she would eventually meet Marianne and Wilfred. I mean, sorry. <laughs> when she was in England, she would eventually meet Phoebe and Wilfred, and they employed her as their housekeeper. And this is this is something we talked about before, but this is a common pattern of plural marriage. It was usually someone that was in the household or close to the family. So it's going to be no surprise that she becomes the first plural wife, if you will. That's right. And um, actually, Wilford and Phoebe had waited longer than some couples to, to well, Wilford had waited some time before taking on a plural wife. Do we know why? Do you know the context behind that? Um, I Not exactly. Um, since we talked about Phoebe, I ran across another quote. When we talked about Phoebe, she there's a, a quote where she thinks that polygamy, she states that at the beginning she thought of polygamy as a, as a heinous thing. And at some point, she sent Wilford a letter that said if he wanted to pick one or two wives, then she wasn't going to stand in his way. And um, I'd have to, I don't have that reference in front of me, but I ran across it when I was looking at Marianne Jackson's story. And from what we know with, with Phoebe's story, she didn't seem, as far as we know, uh, she didn't seem too conflicted about it. Of course, it was difficult for her at first, but not, we don't seem to see the struggles that many other women face. Is that accurate to say? I think when she uh, when she decided to go with it, she was all in. You know, I mean, she had accepted it fully, and I think she struggled with it before accepting it, and then once she accepted it, she was just going to be completely obedient to the, the law. Now... I, I wonder what it would be like. I mean, I often, when I when I contextualize polygamy and I try to think about it and put myself in these positions, I think of myself as the first wife, right? Yeah. Uh, what it would be like to share my husband. But I haven't really thought about what it would be like to be the first plural wife, if you will, uh, the one who is the housekeeper and is asked to do this. So tell us more about her relationship with these guys. Okay, so while in England, she was their housekeeper, and when it was time for the Woodruffs to leave, and there's no record that the marital relationship started any time before in England, but who knows. But when it came time for the Woodruffs to leave and come back to the United States, Phoebe and the children uh, would travel on one boat, and Wilford was going to take another one, and Marianne was listed on the boat with Phoebe and the children. And it, for all appearances, looks like it was, she was, you know, a mother's helper. When you read some of the ships, the records of the people on the ship, they they refer to Phoebe and Wilford as a couple, and they don't mention Marianne as being part of the family. So when they ended up coming back to the United States, and everybody reunited in Nauvoo, then that's when it, it appears that they were probably a family unit. There's com conflicting statements on whether that's when they were sealed or not, because um, they did the Woodruffs and Marianne did attend the the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple, and some people descended from Marianne and other, you know, historians think that it might have happened that day, the sealing. And then, for sure, there was a sealing in Winter Quarters where Marianne, Phoebe, and two other women were sealed to Wilford Woodruff. 
Do we know how, do we know anything about Marianne's thoughts about this at the time? Um, no, I don't have any, any record of what Marianne thought about it because the record that, the records that I've seen written down have mostly been secondhand. Um, her son would write histories of himself and Marianne. And so there's kind of a pretty, I think, a pretty heavy filter um, going on there when he writes the story. But we do, I mean, this is me speculating, and perhaps it's unfair, but uh, we do know that she sort of fits this pattern that would suggest it was difficult for her. Um, well, there's, there's actions, I think, that indicate it was difficult, just not actual words, decisions, and things that happen that I can't imagine it was anything but difficult. Well, tell us what happens next. So, okay, so the family, now that they're all a family and they're in winter quarters, it's not long after that, um, it's within eight months anyway, that they, they find out that Wilford is going to go with the very first trip to the Utah Valley with Brigham Young. And Phoebe has, Phoebe's pregnant and so is Marianne. And Phoebe has children already. And, um, of the, the story that comes down from Marianne is that she, that Wilford asked her what would make her happy when he was leaving. So that kind of implies that she was unhappy. Um, but he asked what would make her happy, and she said to go with him to the valley, or to go with the saints. And she told him she wanted to go. Wilford replied it was too great a risk to her life and the life of their child. She then said that she would start after the baby was born, and if she died, it would be in the wake of the camp of Israel on their way to build a city to the name of the Lord in the midst of the Rocky Mountains. So she wanted to, I think, that she wanted to get there right behind him. She, you know, if she couldn't go with him, she wanted to be there right behind him. So what does that, what does that say to you? What are you speculating there? Well, I think, I think, you know, if this is the first trip to Utah, and they're going to scout it out. And probably Wilford said, there'll be nowhere for you to stay. Let me go first and build houses and places for everyone to be. And then she wanted to be right behind him. That's the impression I get. You know, and so she thought she would get there. She'd be right there in the valley with him. And that's not the way it worked out. <laughs> he did go ahead and start the beginning of um, some cabins. and but. Since his cap, his wagon train was the first to arrive, and the wagon train that Marianne was in came along somewhat behind, when Wilford finished in the Utah Valley getting things started, he turned around and headed back to Winter Quarters. So on his way back to Winter Quarters, he, would, he encountered Marianne's wagon train. And by now the baby's been born. And so they take this opportunity for Wilford to bless the baby and name the baby. And he spent three whole days in camp and kept going to winter quarters to be back with Phoebe and the church and his work. Do we have any sort of recollections of what it would have been like in those three days? Does he spend time with her? Do, do they live together as a real family? Or is he really consumed with the, his role as an apostle? Um, I don't know. I don't have any record of, you know, like with Phoebe's story, you know what house they stayed in, where, you know, what kind of shelter they had here and there. But when Phoebe's story is told, they don't mention Marianne. <laughs> and people that keep Marianne's story haven't really mentioned Phoebe or the houses either. So we know a lot about Phoebe. We don't know a lot about her. And it makes me think, you know, we've just done a podcast about uh, Hannah Tatfield King, who was sort of a middle-class English girl. And now we have Mary Ann, who I'm assuming was working-class English coming over. It sure seems like it. I mean, both of her parents had died, and she probably had to support herself. And I'm sure that's how she ended up being, becoming a housekeeper and, and taking in work. So in some ways, like, Phoebe had this sort of superiority already. She was established. Uh, she was 
sort of of a, you know, a different mindset and here's this young girl. And so it's easy to, for Mary Ann to kind of be lost in the shuffle. And I wonder if this is sort of the way that women coped with this in this sort of competitive way with, um, I mean, I don't, I, I think this is how you would have to cope with it to say this is where my strong points are and this is where these other women fail. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Mary, I would think Marianne would feel like she had to find some way to measure up or, you know, I mean, I can't think of any other way to really call it but compete because Phoebe is her boss and she's taking care of the kids. But at some point it changes the relationship because now, you know, you've got Phoebe and Wilford who are doing this great religious work and they're a great team and they both have these big spiritual experiences and, and at some point Marianne is invited in but at what at what level you know it's well, hard to say because speaking of competition I mean, can you tell us the story about the boat the ship uh, yeah when and among the records that were kept of the voyage um from England to New Orleans that on the boat that Phoebe and um, Phoebe and the kids and Marianne were on. Marianne would later tell a story that during the voyage there was a great big storm and it was so dark that they couldn't see anything. And a group of missionaries went, went to a room alone and, and prayed. And when they came out of the room, a ball of fire appeared on the prow of the ship and lit up the sea so that they could see that they were about to run into these rocks. The captain adjusted their course, and the ball of fire stayed with them until they reached safe waters. And Marianne would tell this story often enough that it was her grandchildren that retold it. But when I was researching other t other stories and records, because they've documented most of this on Mormon Migration, it's a website, and you can, if you know your ancestor's ship or whatever, you can find people that rode with them. And the other people on the ship said nothing about this dark storm, said nothing about um, the, the, the ball of fire or this miracle. And to me, I, I don't know, I would think, this is the impression again that I get, is that Marianne is trying to equal up to Phoebe. Phoebe's a co-missionary with Wilford. You know, she she speaks, I'm sure, about her own personal, because um, she had that out-of-body, near-death experience where she was offered, Phoebe was offered the choice to go on to the next life or stay here and, and toil with Wilford for the gospel. So it's like a grand assignment. And I think um, not just within the marriage, but especially in the marriage, there would be some need to equal the other wife. So I think, I just think that maybe that's part of where this story came from. Interesting. How do you, I mean, when you're doing these, these, this research, how do you feel about these women that come on as sort of like into the arrangement knowing that there is already a marriage happening? Um, well, I'm, there's varying, different women, I think, had a different situation. I think there's some amount of magnetism for some of the men, like the more prominent men, and I think Wilford was one of those that kind of was, had some sort of spiritual magnetism. I don't personally think he's, you know, all that exceptional looking, but, but he, has he status too. very charismatic. He was status and was sort of on the in. Yes, and he, uh, you know, and he, so... That would be, and this was also the structure of ceilings at the time, was, you know, there was definitely a status ranking going on for planning for the next life, which wasn't supposed to be that far away. And so you would want to be, as a woman, especially in that time, and not just within the church, but in that time, your status and future ranking would depend on the man you marry. And so if you were in a celestial marriage with an apostle or the prophet, then then your ranking in the celestial kingdom was, of course, going to be higher in relation to 
your earthly marriage. So I think that's one aspect of who they married. I think some women that were not first wives might have um, felt that they were making a good choice also in a status way, but then they would also have, some of them did get some freedom if they married a well-off man to do work on their own projects, you know, writers and women like that. But that, those I don't think were common. I think that's more the exception. I don't know what to say about or how a woman would come about being married to just your average Joe as a not first wife. So, okay, so he blesses the baby, and he heads back to winter quarters, and Marianne and the baby, Jack's, uh, James Jackson Woodruff, and Wilford's father, Aphek, continue into the Salt Lake Valley. And they get there, and it's... The, the cabins are there for them. Now, there's really one cabin there to live in, and the other cabin um, they're going to use for storage for the machinery they brought for the flour mill that they're going to build, that the woodruffs were going to build. So while they're on the or this wagon trip, Marianne's, the, the train that Ma Marianne was involved in was actually one of those classic, you could actually, it's like, it plays like a movie. There's a lot of things that happen on their on their wagon trek that you you hear about. There, there's records of men going out to hunt and having to shoot a great big bear and nearly dying in the process, but then they have meat for three days. And they um in in more along with Marianne's personal events of that trek. Her son said that she, and this is another part where she's different than Phoebe. Phoebe seems to be a very serious thinker and, you know, stalwart person. Marianne wouldn't stay in the wagon. She would get bored, or as her son said, she, when she would feel lonesome, she would get out of the wagon and go, go visit, uh, Maria Woolley, who was in the, in the in the same way wagon train and she she wouldn't always say hey I'm, I'm gonna get off the wagon she would just jump off the wagon and they're moving wow and and parts of on the side of the wagon there they would have all kinds of things because they stored stuff on the side too and one of the times she went to jump off the wagon her skirt caught on a hammer that was hanging on the edge of the wagon. And she was hung up there, but she was pedaling with her hands a little bit so that she wouldn't, you know, crash on the ground. And it took a minute or two to stop the wagon and get her untangled. And, and her father-in-law said, just next time, tell me, and I'll stop the wagon. She also, so she would spend a lot of time with Maria Woolley. She took her, and I'm not seeing that story I don't know where the baby was in that story, but a lot of times she would take the baby with her and go visit Maria, and it, she would, in the camp, hang out with Maria, and then it'd get dark, and she'd have to go back by Aphek and their, and their wagon. And Maria's husband would walk her back. And one night, he's walking her back, and she, she thought she saw their fire. She's like, okay, I've got it from here. And... So he turns around, and she walks, and it's not her fire. And she kept walking and asking these people when she'd come up on a fire, do you know where uh, where Woodruff, Woodruff is? And they didn't know. And so she's out there wandering around with this little baby, and she's hearing wolves and getting more and more upset. And at some point, she said she could see the wolves. And and there are, actually are other people in the wagon train that, when they wrote down their records, said that the wolves were pretty close to the to the group and visible on occasion. So, wow. And, and eventually, Apic found her and brought her home. And so, she didn't do that anymore. But she just doesn't see. You know, she's she kind of has more impetuous side to her. 
and do I mean what would you speculate that was about? The wolves or the just or her just being I I mean you know I think she was kind of you know flighty. I think she was you know maybe she was significantly younger than Phoebe. Well, she was because Phoebe's the same age as Wilbur, so she was she was young, and she might have just also been particularly social. And I you know if Aphex's an old man, how much? <laughs> How long do you want to sit in the wagon with this, this old guy? <laughs> but uh, uh, when you know you've got a friend a few wagons back or something that you can talk to and and do friend things with. so And that's something I think we need to remember, that a lot of these women were little girls in, in some ways. I mean, they were, I, I think about my own life. I was married at 20, which seems ridiculously young now. And I had my first baby at 23. and that. Like, I was just a child. Like, my mind was not developed. I was a, you know, an infant. And so uh, it's weird to think that these women had to make these adults. I mean, she had a baby at this time, and she's making this long, arduous trek and supposed to be an adult. Yeah, and, and, and I think she might have, you know, thought it was going to be this romantic adventure. I, I get more of a feeling of that from her. Too that you know, this was going to be, you know, it's just a. I think she was just more spontaneous than than not. So, but anyway, so they um they they find they make it into Utah and um, locate the cabins that Wilford had started for them, and the cabins were. Uh, just, you know, log cabins, but they had, usually they would seal the roofs with clay. And so when they get there, um, and they've decided they're gonna, they're gonna, Aphek and Marianne and the baby are going to live in one cabin, and all the equipment for the flour mill is going to be stored in the other cabin to eventually be put together and built. Well, um, the very first winter they got there, it was really a bad winter. There was a lot of rain, and the rain came, and it would wash the clay out of the roof. And it, there, so the rain would come right in. So Marianne would sit in front of the fire, holding her baby, and some kind of cover over her, trying to keep dry. And she told stories that when, and I guess... Apic was probably out working, you know, the men would go doing things to try to to support the, the people that were staying there. And I guess Brigham Young came by, he was probably going around, but visited the family and found out that they were out of firewood and had part of the old bowery chopped down and distributed to people so that they would have something to burn. Interesting. I like yeah. that story. <laughs> well, she... She does tell a good story. See, I think she has a storytelling uh, part to her, or that her family kept them anyway. And because James is one of the sources for this and her grandchildren. And James also talked about how, um, you know, because of the the rough winter without, you know, where the harvest got decimated by the crickets, and that actually would happen a lot. Like crickets or the insects, if it might not be a cricket, but... The insects that would eat the crops, that happened on a regular basis. Just some years were worse than others. And, you know, one, the one year that was so horrible was the year with the miracle with the gulls. And, um, and that, that was even, the birds would eat them was kind of a regular occurrence too. Um, but, so this particular year there's no, hardly any food. And James would tell his kids that when he was a little kid, he was only allowed one biscuit a day. And he still managed to have a pet dog. And Marianne got upset with him when she found out that he was saving part of his biscuit to give to the dog. But she still managed to um, share what they had somehow. Because the Mormon battalion came through this same winter before Wilford has come home. And there were 15... Um, 
guys left from the Mormon battalion that ended up staying in Salt Lake. They tried to set up their tents somewhere near Marianne and Apex cabin, but it was storming already. It was November. And between the wind and the rain, and these men were really weak from not having any food and from walking across the country. So they weren't able to set up their tents. And Marianne, without Apic being around, opened up the cabin that had the flour mill machinery in it and told them they could stay there. And they ended up staying there through the winter. So she helped. They, the family helped support them, according to the story. And that, that's 1848 when the spring comes around. There's a record of mail being delivered to Wilford in winter quarters. And the May, so the month after he gets that mail, he sends a letter back. And in that letter is when he states that the marriage between he and Marianne has been dissolved. The letter that was sent to him doesn't survive. So we don't know what was in that. But judging by him dissolving the marriage, it's implied that it was at her request. She had sent him a letter saying that she didn't want to be married anymore or something to that effect. Or maybe she gave him an ultimatum. I don't know. You know, if you're not coming home, why should I stay? That's all, you know, conjecture on my part. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that could happen. If she was young, there could be... I mean, do we know if she remarried shortly after... No, she didn't, actually. That's so interesting. But see, but still, I mean, that doesn't stop her from being a young girl and being aware of her prospects, you know? I mean, here she's a young lady, and there's 15 Mormon battalion men living in the cabin next door. I mean, whether she did, I, I, I doubt she did anything inappropriate or, you know, no story of that survives, and Wilford never accused her of anything like that. But you would still be aware that you're alone, your husband's off with the first wife, and you don't know when he's coming home. So, And you're struggling. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're having all these experiences with people who are not your husband mm-hmm. when you should be, you know, bonding and building a family. That would be really difficult. Yeah, it would. And so, so the marriage was dissolved. And her family, you know, doesn't say very much about it. And when Wilford and Phoebe went back to Winter Quarters, well, when Wilford went back to Winter Quarters, it would end up being a very long time before he came back, another two years before he came back to Utah Valley with Phoebe. Marianne is single all this time, or does not marry, and... She received her endowments in 1852. So, just to re reestablish the timeline, Wilford and Phoebe come back to Utah Valley in 1850. And so Marianne is his divorced wife in town. And two years later, in 1852, she takes out her endowments with Eliza R. Snow and Elizabeth Ann Whitney officiating. Then in 1853, Five years after the letter exchange that resulted in the divorce, then they did, then they undid the sealing. They officially undid the sealing between Wilford and Marianne. So, and by this time in 1853, Wilford would be living with four wives in Salt Lake, in various homes, but not Marianne. Do we know where she was at this point? Not exactly. I don't know who she was living with or where she was staying. In 1857, she asked Wilford if they could be remarried. And he said no. Because, um, he said in their past experience, he said, quote, we have not rendered each other happy. You know, I, I want to talk about the quote for a minute. I think it's interesting that he says, we have not rendered each other happy. There's a lot to unpack there, right? Because... Yeah. We know that, I mean, Paula Kelly Harleen says this beautifully in her book, The Polygamous Wise Writing Club, that we should view Mormon polygamy as multiple monogamies, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like the true sense of polygamy. So it's like 
copies of monogamy. And so in this sense, that quote was consistent, right? The idea that you should, you know, in this, in the 19th century, start to marry for love and you should be happy, happily partnered and all of that. And yet we're getting rhetoric from other prophets too. And women in polygamy saying the only way for this to work is to take love out of it. And your happiness isn't what matters. It's your sacrifice to God. So I just find this quote very interesting. Yeah. I wonder, you know, and I wonder too about their personalities. Because where she is, she might have been kind of more high maintenance than Phoebe. You know, she, I think she's, she probably should have been in a monogamous marriage her whole life, if you ask me. I mean, not that we shouldn't all be in a monogamous marriage. But I, I think she just, I get the impression that she really would have benefited from some one-on-one attention. <laughs> and I think Wilford knew that he wasn't doing that. You know, and whether he viewed it kindly or as if she was not worth his time, I don't know. So after he tells her no, um, it's within the same year, she marries David James Ross. She would be his third wife in polygamy. David Ross had come from Scotland with his wife when they converted and been sealed to another woman, so he already had two wives. And in 1857, the first wife has a baby and dies shortly after. And depending on whose record you read, Marianne married him shortly after the wife died, but would have still been a polygamous wife because he had another, um, the first wife was Helen, he had a second wife named Dinah, and Marianne would have been the third one. So, so, so we know that it wasn't really the principle that was upsetting to her, right? It does seem like a personal conflict. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to say because when I was young, I wanted to do things the way you were supposed to do them. I had ideas that love would conquer everything. But, you know, she's not as young as she was. And now, by this time, I mean, I think she believed in the, believed in the celestial marriage principle that her, her redemption and her, her salvation depended on her being in a celestial marriage. So, okay, Wilfred won't marry me again. I need to find me a celestial partner. And I don't know, there's, I haven't found a story of how she and David Ross met. He was, um, he was kind of prominent. He was, he was in, he was high up in Brigham Young's employment. He would, he worked in, he was in the, the Utah militia or the Nauvoo Legion. And he had been in charge of some of the immigration efforts. Um, and he continued to be in charge of military, a lot of military operations in Utah. So he kind of had some power. He was some, somewhat prominent, but not not a religiously prominent person. Even though there, well, actually, there's some record of him speaking at some gatherings, but he wasn't an apostle or anything. So Marianne would have two children with David Ross, uh, two boys, William and John, and those that happened to be the names of her two brothers that she had left behind in England. So David in working with Brigham Young, ended up making a mistake and giving credit to some people for uh, for weaponry. And he wasn't supposed to do that. Brigham Young had a strict policy about who, who could have weapons and when they paid and how much they paid. And David Ross had gone against that policy, and the people that he gave the weapons to never paid. So Brigham Young came down on him and excommunicated him. Wait, wait, wait. I just want this to sink in mm-hmm. that, you know, because it's, it's interesting, this right to bear arms, but in Brigham Young's time, his rule was law, right? I mean, literally. Yes. And uh, you could get excommunicated for going against him in this sort of way, even if it was... I mean, do we know what his intentions were behind this, David Ross's intentions? I think he just made an erroneous judgment call. 
someone promised to pay. He said, okay. And then they didn't pay, and it was on him because they didn't pay, and he had gone against policy. So, he wasn't supposed to give weapons without getting payment first. Does he stay in the church? Does he leave the church? Well, see, that depends. <laughs> in the records that you see, um, the records that you see attached to Marianne, he he just disappears. They said that he left the state, and they never heard, and Marianne never heard from him ever again. But um, when you get into the census records, you can find out that he only went as far away as Morgan. And because this happened, it was in the 1860s when he was excommunicated, 1867. And so by 1870, he is living in Morgan with another wife and some stepchildren. And I believe one of his kids from the very first wife is living with them also. And by 1870, Marianne is living with James and his wife. And they've got the two they, uh, James's half-brothers in the house. So her children with Dave Ross. So then, but, I mean, maybe she never heard from him ever again. That part might be true. He just didn't leave the state. Another descendant of his, his son, his oldest son from his first marriage, tracked him down, later found out, later found him because the whole time he was excommunicated, he continued to pay tithing to his old ward, and they had tithing receipts, and the son found him because of his tithing receipts. Wow. Yeah, he um he did. I mean, he did uh, drink David Ross. He drank, but that wasn't an automatic no no. <laughs> there were plenty of LDS people that drank, and not not just the general population. There were some in in positions of semi power that would continue to drink, but because you know they didn't maybe they didn't get out of hand, it was okay, or because they had other contributions that outweighed this then they might let it slide. But apparently when that was one of the things that was used against him, though, when Brigham Young decided that he wasn't happy with him anymore, there were published reports of him being a drunkard in the Desert News. So, <laughs> so you've got to be careful who you cross, I guess. Yeah, I mean... That's a powerful and kind of a sad story that a little mistake could ruin you. Mm -hmm. And he he would eventually he would his son went and retrieved him and he uh, was eventually rebaptized. So, you know, almost a happy ending, but he didn't. There were nice things, you know. He he apparently he was married a couple times, and one of the other wives said that he was a good stepfather to her kids and built them fun things to play on, things like that. But Marianne, though, at this point, is really feeling like she is losing the Celestial Lottery, probably. Because <laughs> she's tried and tried, and now she's not, you know, this guy she married. Now she still can't get into the Celestial Kingdom because he's excommunicated. So, finally, in um, 1878, there's a record in Wilford's journals that he asked Marianne if she wanted to be resealed. And the resealing didn't happen, and there's nothing written down as to why. So I don't know if Marianne said no, or if Wilford changed his mind, or if there was a scheduling problem. Then, according to a descendant of Marianne's and another historian who's working on, who recently wrote a book about Wilford Woodruff and his, it's called the, Temp the Development of Temple Doctrine. It's by Jennifer Ann Mackley. She also did some studies on the wives, some little short studies on the wives. And she says that in 1886, uh, Marianne approached or wrote President John Taylor about being sealed to someone for eternity. And President Taylor said he would have to consult with Apostle Woodruff. So I guess even though the sealing had been undone, Wood, uh, Wilford still had, like, first dibs. So, a really flip way to say it, but that's what it looks like to me. So, uh, President Taylor asked 
president, uh, asked Wilford Woodruff, and Wilford Woodruff agreed. One of and Fanny and James's daughter would write that one night while the brethren were quote on the underground. So this is during the um, you know the prosecutions for cohabitation by the federal government. One night at James's house, James and Fanny, Apostle Woodruff, George Q. Cannon, and George Reynolds came to James and Fanny's house and took Marianne away in a carriage to be resealed to Wilford. After that, Marianne would reside alone with financial support from Wilford. And this was uh, from a sworn affidavit by James's uh, daughter. And also, sit from that date forward, there little notes in Wilford Woodruff's journal that indicate ongoing communication and some feelings of responsibility. There's, at one point in saying, I, I, you know, it was seeming like, in other things I read, and then getting to this point, it was seeming like maybe Wilford was kind of getting softer as older, because he, he did seem to do that in some other angles. But there were, there were, uh, in Thomas, uh, Thomas Alexander's book, he talks about, um, Wilford really didn't feel like he was obligated to take care of her, right, you know, on a regular basis. And she had to point out to him the level of, you know, quality of life that his other wives enjoyed and what she was living with. So apparently she didn't have, have it so good. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that's such a complicated story because we do know that Brigham Young felt similarly to some of his wives, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like, I mean, I'm, I'm torn. In some ways, the ceiling was, in their mind, they were the ticket to a woman getting into heaven, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't want to be more than that. And yet, here they are having children with some of these women. And, I mean, what is a woman to do in the 19th century with a child as a polygamist? It's not like she can just leave the community and have any sort of standing somewhere else. It's interesting, too, because, I mean... I've had, if in the modern ex-wives and child support kind of thing, you see kind of the same thing. When when they're still part of your family, I, not most men or most, well, that's pretty gendered. In, in, in a family unit that's still whole, cost is not as itemized as it is when there's no longer that emotional attachment. As soon as there's no longer that emotional attachment or you're not personally receiving something from the partner, you want to know where every penny goes, and you decide things are necessary or not. And I get the feeling that's kind of what would happen with one of these wives, is that, you know, why don't you go get another husband? <laughs> why don't you go get someone else to take care of you? I, I, I'm not getting anything from you. So. Yeah, and I just, I mean, that's another aspect. Every time we tell these stories, it's like there's a new thing for me to consider. You know, you think you understand sort of the challenges of this practice. And then you think of this, like, the idea of being a burden to a man. Because, you know, we're, I think in our Western modern thinking, we think, oh, it's about men wanting to have a lot of sex, right? But we don't think about these women being a burden, you know, um, and what that would feel like to be the, the extra weight. And that would be a really painful, uncomfortable position to be in. And then, I mean, it sounds like she kind of bounced around. Like you said, she sort of was losing the celestial lottery. And, I mean, when we talk about families and stability of families, this is not it, right? Right. There's another, and another part, too, as, as, um, well, because she, she's a public person that everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows this is Wilford Woodruff's ex-wife. How poor can he let her live? He, um, you know what I mean? There, I'm sure there's some level of, well, I can't let her live in a hovel. <laughs> um, he did, when she was having trouble with David Ross, and, um, that's, and, and then David Ross got excommunicated. Wilford took James in to live with him, and I don't know which house James ended up staying, and which wife. But he took in James, and he had always kind of been a fatherly presence with him. But then, you see, Marianne had to go, I don't know where. You know, if, if, it, if she stayed with David for a little while, or friends, or what. It doesn't, you know, because it doesn't land on a census, I can't say. 
Yeah, and what's interesting about that is many of the prophets, um, even though their wives are largely forgotten in general, we know that they're honored. There's like family history sites by a lot of them. People take pride in being related to a prophet. And yet, this doesn't seem to be the case with Mary Ann. She seems kind of just lost in the shuffle, you know? Yes, yeah. Because you don't, I mean, it's James, I think James had a good sense of, you know, his status as Wilford's son. And he speaks kindly of his mother. But there, it, I don't know, it just seems like, she just seems like she spent an awful lot of time alone and getting the short end of the stick. So, but she, um, and she would end up, she ended up dying of paralysis, which I think is a stroke, um, in October of 1894. And Wilford wrote down in his journal that she had died and writes that he went to go to his burial plot and pick out a spot for her. And this was also at her request. It was part of the being sealed is that she would be buried there. And he picked out her spot and he spoke at her funeral along with a few other, you know, ranking church officials. And, and she is, she happened to be one of the wives that was included on the headstone. And he had, he has a pretty unique headstone too. I don't know. Have you been to the Salt Lake City Cemetery? Yeah, it's it's yeah. incredible. I actually yeah. love it there. Yeah. So he has a pretty unique headstone, and she is one of the wives that's listed on the headstone, and that five of them made it onto the headstone. And so she's counted. So I guess there's that. Yeah, she she's history Caesar. Well, I'm so glad that you have brought her to life for us more. And if anyone out there has any more information on her, go ahead and contact Corey or I and let us know. Again, Corey, thanks so much for all the work you're doing in bringing these women to life for us. Thanks for, it's been really interesting. I, you know, it, I run into things and cross over from stories. It's like, for me, since I, and, and, you know, you get that kind of, oh, I know this person. I've heard of them before. <laughs> So who's up next? Who's the next one? Uh, the next one would be either Sarah Eleanor Barton. Oh, I'm getting them. There were two. The two young ones from from Winter Quarters. It's two teen wives in Winter Quarters. It's Mary Carolyn Barton and Sarah Eleanor Brown. Depending on how you count it, it'll be one of them. Awesome. They, they're together, but not. There's enough story on both of them. Maybe we'll do them together. Maybe they can have their own. Well, again, thank you, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.